For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and civil rights attorney Ryan Kiesel. With the Republican runoff for labor commissioner coming up next week, candidate and state representative Sean Roberts is suing a fellow lawmaker for slander. Roberts is seeking damages from Representative Carol Bush for comments she made concerning allegations of domestic abuse. Ryan, does Roberts have a case here, and how could it impact his race against incumbent Commissioner Leslie Osborne? Absolutely not. He has he has zero case here, and in fact, he has a case against himself. Uh, Oklahoma has a strong law that allows individuals that are accused of slander and libel in an effort to suppress their First Amendment speech, and that's exactly what's happened here. Representative Bush had First Amendment speech commentary that was important for the political uh, dynamic, yeah, at least she felt so, and she said it, and um, that's that's protected speech. Now, if, uh, if Sean Roberts could show where this was a lie, or he could show that Representative Bush knew it was a lie and said it anyways, he might have something, but that's just simply not the case uh, at all. Yeah, I think that uh, this will be dismissed promptly under Oklahoma's anti-slap lawsuit, uh, and I also think that there are going to be fees assessed against Sean Roberts. And, and in addition to fees uh, that Carol Bush may have to pay her lawyer, I think that there may be sanctions uh, actually imposed against Sean Roberts here that would go over and above his lawyer fees and the lawyer fees that represented the Bushes, but sanctions that a court would impose to send a message that you can't do this kind of stuff. It's important to note, you know, that the Tulsa world you know, did, you know, the big liberal media uh, did Sean Rod that, that Sean Roberts is always talking about actually did him a favor in, in their report. They said that his ex-wife had recanted uh, the allegations that she made in these court filings. And I can't find anywhere that she did that. If you, if you read the letter that, that she wrote uh, and that the um, state uh, or that Sean Roberts campaign put out, it, she says, <clears throat> I will only make one comment. Uh, some 25 years ago, I was married to Sean Roberts. Since then, Sean and I have served the state of Oklahoma. And po- Sean has served the state of Oklahoma politics. She says, I have nothing bad to say about him. But she doesn't do anything to say that those statements that I made in those divorce filings were not true at the time. I made them out of anger or desperation or whatever it may be, that hasn't been recanted. So with, with that being the case, Roberts has no case against Bush. Bush has a case against Roberts now. Neva. Absolutely. Uh, Bush does have a case against Roberts. And it reminds me of uh, Senator Ron Sharp and his, uh, mm-hmm. uh, his issue with Epic and the fact that those two uh, individuals, um, uh, uh, Cheney and, and Harris, went after him and ultimately wound up uh, Epic having to write a $500,000 check plus interest, I believe, uh, to Senator Sharp uh, as a result of that protracted uh, litigation. So, um, and I think when we look at what happened this week, I mean, the courthouse steps, here comes a candidate, a wife hand in hand with the attorney and campaign manager, and, and the attorney making this allegation that what he said was that the divorce uh, the divorce filings were, in his words, I think, quote, a lie. Uh, so, um, and then went on, you know, to kind of not only take on Representative uh, Representative Bush, but they also were asking for cease and desist letters to the, t- the, to the uh, television stations to take an ad off that was uh, basically putting this same information out, uh, direct, uh, direct from court documents. 
And to my knowledge, I, I saw the one of the the uh, commercial uh, this morning. Uh, so uh, I saw it they, a few times this they, morning. They did not uh, they did not have success in uh, getting it off the air, which may have been their most urgent attempt and fell flat. So I think in their uh, in their quest to try to get uh, some momentum. Uh, back on their side, what they've done is put themselves in a tailspin. And, and if if the polling uh, reflects any of this, and you have to take some of this with a grain of salt, because in low turnout runoff elections, the polls don't always reflect what's happening, because we always see this big undecided number, which I think typically says two things. One, half of those folks aren't going to <laughs> go, go bother to go to the polls. And the other half may, in some measure, have made a decision and are just not telling uh, these pollsters. So, but in those numbers, if you just take them on the on the upshot, the, the most recent poll numbers out there were 39% for Osborne and 19%, I think, for Roberts with the rest undecided. Well, I mean, if that's the trend, then it certainly is a good trend for uh, for Leslie Osborne. Mm-hmm. So, I, you know, I think it's it is fascinating that uh, that we that we saw also in the uh, ethics reports filing this week that Osborne I think dramatically outraised Sean Roberts. Sean Roberts, who had been endorsed by the governor, governor having a fundraiser, uh, or at least the word was the governor was having a fundraiser for Roberts, and yet she raised about one hundred ninety thousand. He raised a, a little short of 7,000. So again, that speaks volumes when you talk about where the support is in a secondary race like the one we're talking about on Labor Commissioner. Absolutely. Meanwhile, we have a pair of runoffs for U.S. Senate from both sides of the aisle. On the Republican side, Mark Wayne Mullen and T.W. Shannon are vying for the ticket for the general election to replace Senator Jim Inhofe. Neva, has Shannon made enough of a move to challenge Mullen? Well, I think certainly this has been a campaign where both both Mullen and Shannon have been out there campaigning hard. I mean, no one has given up uh, any ground to the other. I mean, they are both working hard. I think it was interesting that uh, earlier this week we saw Mark Wayne Mullen get the endorsement from Governor Stitt. Um, I think uh, that was something that hadn't really been on the radar, I think, in a lot of the the folks uh, watching the race uh, to to see that happen. Again, when we look at some of the polling, I mean, you, you have to remember that when we when we think about this race, I mean, it is largely a race where uh, Mullen came in about 46 percent in the primary in, in, in a field of, I believe it was four, Shannon back back from that about 27 percent so it really kind of as you restart this senate race it was about who could get enough money to start getting some traction in the media and really develop uh, uh, some energy in the campaign and we've seen we've seen a lot of outside groups i mean really come in on both sides flooding the race with uh, uh, with money and the impact of that i think it's going to be fascinating because it looks to me like when you get a race like this where you have two folks that have been out there, you have to take a look and say, what is the most significant factor? Well, m- many Republicans suggest that it is the Trump endorsement, which Mark mm-hmm. Wayne Mullen had early on and has used it uh, aggressively. Um, T.W. Shannon has tried to blunt that with uh, the work that he did back in 
uh, the last election where he was out on the campaign trail for Trump uh, and has tried to try to try to develop a little bit of a wedge there and take the edge off. But, you know, we haven't seen any big, big endorsements come out from Shannon this week or even leading up to the, you know, to the end of the runoff here. So I think it's a ground game. Anyone, I I wouldn't rule out anyone in any of these runoff races. I mean, it's down to the, you know, you have to get your folks out in, again, what are typically very low turnout elections. Right. Well, and I agree. It's, it, it, you know, I wouldn't rule out a surprise uh, because, I mean, low turnout, anything can happen. But if I'm one of the two camps right now walking into the runoff election, I'm, I'm much happier if I'm in the Mullen camp. Yeah. Uh, you, you walk in with a sizable advantage coming out of the primary. And that represents, I think, the sizable advantage that he had at the very beginning of the race. I mean, he made some early uh, personal loans and investments into his campaign. Uh, even though he's not an incumbent member of the United States Senate, he, as an incumbent member of Congress, uh, was there during the Trump administration. Was was part of, you know, is able to kind of cast himself in this, you know, uh, in in a way that that I think is, you know, uh, quite anti-democratic. But you know, kind of cast himself as a, you know, sympathetic to the January sixth, uh, at least the the feelings that led to January sixth. And he's able to tap into that because he was there. Uh, and T.W. Shannon was back in Oklahoma. He was out of elected office. He was not in the headlines. He wasn't in the papers. And, you know, whether you like the reasons that Mullen was in the papers or not, his, you know, just, you know, wackadoodle mission over to Afghanistan to interfere in a national security matter uh, because he, he felt like the Biden administration wasn't doing a good enough job. I mean, it, he was in the headlines all around the country. And I, I think that that, and especially here in Oklahoma, and, you know, whenever I see that, I'm like, oh, my gosh. But I think a lot of his constituency, and in particular this runoff constituency, see him as somebody that is, is really the prototypical Republican candidate that they want in Congress, they want in the United States Senate, and they want them there to support uh, former President Trump and, and his either his agenda or potentially his run for uh, election in two years. And I think you're right. I mean, I think that is the kind of the upshot is that Mark Wayne Mullen came into the race as the front runner and has continued through even the runoff as the perceived front runner. And I think now it's just a case of closing strong. We've seen in his uh, closing uh, messages on the airwaves that he is doing exactly what you said, seizing the the very things that have put him in the headlines and trying to trying to put it to his advantage. I mean, whether it is uh, certainly not only beyond the Trump endorsement, but the other things that he has been in the headlines for and has has. Uh, embraced uh, and said that this is what Oklahomans want and I'm the guy that should be the next United States senator and I think uh, it uh, it certainly it certainly sets up for uh, the need for the Shannon camp to pull either a very late uh, you know significant uh, endorsement boost or something or to just make sure they wind up doing a better ground game and somehow can eke past in a very low turnout election. And Mullen's just got to not make a mistake, uh, a really big mistake. Um, yeah, fascinating to think if, if you go back, you know, maybe, you know, 10, 15 years, uh, maybe they don't even have to go back that far before we got into the kind of you know, current state of tribalism and politics. Um, and, you know, this idea, I think, in Republican politics in particular, Liz Cheney can tell you about this. You've got to pledge fealty to Donald Trump, and if you don't, then you're in jeopardy. Uh, but if we didn't have that dynamic, we'd have a, a campaign that would be, you know, the, kind of, you know, this seems, you know, trite now, but a campaign between a plumber and a banker. Uh, and that, if, you know, take the plumber. Uh, you know, what, what a great underdog story that is. But that hasn't even really surfaced. I mean, I know that Mark Wayne talks about, you know, his, his background as a plumber, 
but you know, those things really haven't surfaced. That kind of like this internal class politics of like, you know, I pulled myself up, I did this, I did that. Now, you know, I work with my hands and I'm not a laborer. Um, that hasn't really played itself out. I think 10 years ago, that would have been one of the main campaign messages. And I think the other thing is you have two men who both have held elective office. I mean, right. and that is a significant point as well. I mean, Mark Wayne Mullen in Congress and, and T.W. Shannon, Shannon having been Speaker of the House at a very young age in the, in the Oklahoma House of Representatives. So these folks both come with political clout. They both come with political chips to play and political support. But um, we'll just have to see if uh, see how it winds down here in the closing stretch, and it'll be fascinating to see who the nominee is going to be. On the Democratic side, Jason Bollinger and Madison Horn are facing off Tuesday for the Democratic nomination to face James Lankford and two others in November. Ryan, how do you rate this race? I think it's a toss-up. Um, I think I think it's difficult to say because uh, you know it's really a low information campaign for voters. I mean, I, I don't want to say that the Bollinger and, and Horn haven't been out campaigning because I know that they have. I mean, they've been working hard. They've been raising money. They've been going to events, uh, and you know they're they're trying to do what you do when you don't have a million dollars in the bank to run a campaign. Um, but because of that, um, it, it'll be interesting to see, you know, what voters make their decision based upon here. You know, one, one theory is that, uh, that Madison Horn, because her last name is Horn may benefit somewhat, uh, from the popular Kinderhorn. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, she may have some crossover there. I don't know. Uh, but it's, it's, I think it's little things like that that may ultimately end up deciding this because, I think if you ask most voters, uh, Democratic uh, runoff voters, can can you tell us a difference in the platform between Bollinger and Horn? I don't think any, uh, I don't, I don't want to say any, but I don't think very many could tell you that. Right. I, I think it is interesting. I mean, you're right. You have two 30-something candidates, uh, both political novices, both underfunded. I mean, there's certainly no ability for them to do anything but shoe leather campaigns because they can't get on the airwaves. They don't have the, the money. The, the race is not uh, a signature race that people are watching across the country or things that you really need in a U.S. Senate race to start uh, kind of ramping up interest. It is. I think it is interesting. Some of kind of the the subtext in in the race. I mean, you have the the situation where you do have Madison Horn, who appears to have not registered in Oklahoma until April uh, at filing. Um, after moving to the state, I think she was in Virginia doing cyber technology um, and had been in Oklahoma about a year, but had not. You and know, she had, had to not registered that in front of the election board. Yes. And so you have that, and then you have the situation with uh, her opponent, uh, Bollinger, who has been a lifelong Democrat, lived in Oklahoma except for the brief time he was in Washington, um, and uh, somebody that's been more active in the Democratic Party from all indications. So when you get into these kind of elections where you have party activists going to decide who their nominee is because largely the rest of the the, uh, voters are not paying much attention, and you have this other dynamic that no one talks about usually, and it's interesting to me that Democrats who have allowed independents to vote in their primaries and runoffs, don't re- you don't really see much attention being placed. And if there's some kind of uh, underground campaign going on to try to get these folks out and bring some of them out that could make a difference in whether or not you win or lose, that will be a I think a fascinating dynamic to look at when we see the uh, uh, we see the results and start to analyze them after next Tuesday. But it, it, when you look at their profiles, they're largely you're right, Ryan. I mean, they're not trying to break out on issues. They're mm-hmm. they're very similar on issues, very similar on background. Uh, both from rural small towns. I mean, uh, they they really have. Um, 
they have some things to offer. I think that you hear many of the Democrat, the, the folks that have been party leaders, have been saying for really since the outset of the primary that they are glad to see these bright, energetic, young, new faces that are becoming engaged and running for political office, and they see that as the future. I just think that when you look at the numbers and you look at what this race sets up for in November, this is going to be, whoever the nominee is, a very, very daunting challenge. The other big race for a federal seat from the state is taking place in eastern Oklahoma, where Avery Fricks and Josh Burkeen hope to win Republican approval to move on to November and try to win the Congressional District 2 seat held by Mark Wayne Mullen. Neva, any idea on a favorite for this runoff election? Again, I think it's a toss-up. I don't think, I mean, when you look at the fact that both of these, both of these folks uh, barely had double digits uh, coming out of a multi-multi-way primary, uh, they had to basically start from scratch. And so what you have is that this is a clear ca- case of a campaign where you have outside money that is really dominating the conversation and trying to dictate the landscape in terms of the issues. You have over $3 million that's been spent so far uh, combined, uh, both uh, opposing and supporting both of these candidates. So that is more, I mean, I think the total for both candidates, uh, Burkine and and Fritz, uh, in the last uh, reports, I think combined, they were still under a million dollars. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, th- this is dramatic. And I think uh, that will be uh, the takeaway in terms of what happens in the last days of who can who can galvanize the base. Um, and I think whether or not either one of these candidates have been able to kind of have a breakout moment. And even in the hour-long debate earlier this week uh, that was televised out of a Tulsa TV station, uh, there was a lot of give and take and there were some spirited moments, but I would say that overall you just had the normal uh, kind of political hour-long discourse with no one really uh, getting a great shot across the ballot, the other candidate or campaign. Right. Well, and I I agree. This is uh, either of these candidates can walk away with this race, and um, you know some of it's out of their control, as Neva said. I mean, you've got you know the club for growth, you've got some of these big groups that have come in and are dropping millions of dollars into this campaign that have messages that you know by law can't be coordinated with the campaigns right. themselves. So a lot of the messaging, uh, if not most of the messaging that's happening out in eastern Oklahoma right now, is not driven by the people that are actually running for office. Um, when you look at that debate, you know, there were very few differences, as Neva said. I, I think that they, they both tried to, you know, mention Donald Trump as much as possible. And, and Merkin had kind of the, the moment where he said that he thought Fricks had to say Donald Trump 12 times, uh, that he, you know, to, to say it as many times as Fricks had, uh, raised taxes. I mean, that was maybe the only you know, decent kind of takeaway line there, but both of them trying to say Trump again, this, this idea in the Republican primary, uh, you know, paging Liz Cheney, the Republican primaries and runoffs, you've got to, you know, just demonstrate total fealty to, to Donald Trump. I think that, you know, overall that, you know, what, what happened, uh, in, in Wyoming, uh, and then what we see happening in these, in the U S Senate race in Oklahoma and now in these congressional races, it is really concerning to the Republic. It ought to be concerning to the Republican party that, their party has become a party of a single person, it appears, at least with their electorate. So much of their electorate is driven by the direction that they're given by Donald Trump. That's not to say that he has total control. There have been some primaries around the country where he's made an endorsement and that person's lost. But by and large, he has a very strong track record. And I think it's uh, it's pretty easy to say that he has a uh, stranglehold on the party and on these runoff elections. 
Um, one of the things that did kind of strike me in their differences, um, and this is because, you know, when Burkin was in the uh, Oklahoma State Senate, he was a very, con- you know, considered one of the most conservative members there. But there's this question of whether or not you could reach across, across the aisle and work with somebody. Um, and Fricks, I think, went first. And he said that he would, you know, work with anybody who loves this country, but he couldn't work with any Democrat who believed in socialism. You know, he wouldn't even sit down across the table with him. Or and, wore a pen that said socialist pen, de- Democrat. I socialist believe. Democrat, uh, you know, that he wouldn't even sit down across the table with him. And Burkeen said, you know, that you know, he would, uh, he said, you know, before you change anybody's mind, you got to love them first. And, you know, he said he would kind of sit down with anybody, mm-hmm. which, you know, boy, when you're, you know, that ought to be something that everybody can say that you try to work with anybody. But, you know, in the current political environment, that's almost a little bit of breath of fresh air that you've got a candidate that's saying, you know what, uh, when it comes to finding solutions, I'll, I'll, I'll talk to anybody that can help us get those solutions. You know, it was interesting, too. You would have expected, and it did come up, McGirt, in that debate. And mm-hmm. you have both of these guys are Choctaw Nation citizens. So uh, you had, I think, Fritz kind of making the kind of his upshot was that we don't need to have this us versus them mentality and kind of taking the uh, uh, the position that they we need to look at solutions and, and kind of that, that – uh, that context, and yet you had Burkeen who came out with a what I thought was a much more firm stance, and he really um, uh, he really talked about uh, I think in his words the lawlessness in Eastern Oklahoma, cited some examples, uh, uh, some personal anecdotal uh, uh, examples, and and I thought that I thought that in their attempt to kind of both carve out their niche in that, uh, it was kind of uh, it, it was interesting that neither one took a uh, kind of took a shot across the bow at the other, and yet they were trying to at least hold their ground on the issue uh, as it was right then. The other thing that was fascinating, going back to the whole Trump uh, conversation, is that 10 minutes or more of that debate, uh, they talked about Trump, and really it was each one trying to uh, suggest that the other one hadn't come out and supported Trump early enough, hadn't endorsed uh Trump early enough, and you had this, uh, you had this give and take, and you really had uh, Fritz. Really, that was one time where I think he tried to have the salvo. I mean, yeah. he he made the shot and said he used former uh, Representative Mike, Mike Christian's name specifically, and uh, he said that he was told that Burkine had refused to endorse uh, Trump back during the presidential campaign, and in and what he said was that Burkine had said his words were that Trump was too vulgar. So there was really a moment there where they were really trying to they were really trying to kind of drive the wedge and see who could get the upper hand on this whole conversation about uh, uh, support or lack of support for for uh, Donald Trump and I think uh, whether the voters really there was enough of that that starts to really get out in the in the public uh, conversation among Republicans and not just those who watched or heard about the debate that will be the I think the driving question on that. That back and forth was really interesting. It was this yeah, you know it, you know kind of reminded me of like you know being with my friend. I listened to Neutral Milk Hotel before you did. You know <laughs> I'm cooler than you are. You know it's uh, you know it, it, that that was uh, a, a bit bizarre. But on on the McGirt question, yeah, I feel like they were trying to walk this this tightrope that's happened since we've had the uh, Huerta decision drop. Uh, because you know one of the things that 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 happened with that decision is. That you had in the the minority there, Justice Gorsuch saying, 
you're going to have to have congressional intervention at this point. Congress has to act on this, and that's how you're going to have certainty. You know, that's the solution now, uh, because the state doesn't seem willing to cooperate. You're going to have to have congressional action. And you had two guys running for Congress to go to Congress that could be a part of that solution, and neither of them seemed to embrace the, the mantle of saying, I'm going to go to Congress, and I'm going to help craft a solution that works for the state and works for tribal governments and the federal government. Neither of them wanted to embrace that uh, that charge. And, you know, is there a question of will there be a late endorsement by Governor Stitt in this race? I mean, we've, we've seen him weigh mm-hmm. in in the U.S. Senate race. I mean, that's something that hasn't happened. Uh, Burkine has had some significant endorsements that I do think play into a uh, a Republican low turnout runoff, and that is he had Ted Cruz uh, endorse, he had mm-hmm. Michelle Bachman endorse, he had uh, Stephen Moore, uh, the conservative author, endorse. These are folks that among the likely Republican voters that turn out in this kind of an election, those kind of uh, those kind of endorsements tend to have some sway because Cruz was very popular when he ran uh, for president uh, in Oklahoma and certainly in the second district. So uh, we'll see if there's any late uh, late action and whether or not they can get that word out. That's the other thing. I mean, you can get every endorsement in the world, you can have all the money in the world, but if you can't drive your message to turn out people to actually vote for you on August 23rd, it's all for naught. In the Republican runoff election for state superintendent, Secretary of Education Ryan Walters is facing Shawnee Superintendent April Grace. The two faced each other in a debate last week. Neva, how does this race look to you? I, I think this one, a lot of folks are saying and, and suggesting that this is one where Ryan Walters is breaking out into a substantial lead. I don't necessarily see that. I think I think we have a very competitive race. It was very competitive in the primary They have very different messages. I mean, so uh, the question again will be where the where the pockets and where the impact is with the voters. I mean, you have a clear you have a clear contrast here between uh, pro uh, a a very school choice candidate in Ryan Walters and a very uh, uh, not school choice candidate in. Uh, April Grace and someone who uh, is trying to appeal certainly to uh, the audience out there that believe that the impact on this would be very negative in rural uh, Oklahoma with the schools. And she certainly is uh, crisscrossing the state and seems to be running a very grassroots driven campaign, has from the outset. And, uh, you know, you have to look at the fact that as a superintendent uh, in a school district right now herself, I mean, she does have kind of a natural springboard and constituency constituency that she's trying to uh, impact. By the same token, Ryan Walters has a lot of money, a lot of support, the governor uh, certainly uh, in his uh, camp and others. So uh, it gets down to, I think, for Republicans, what kind of candidate and what kind of profile of a candidate they want to be their next uh, uh, superintendent of public instruction, believing that it will be a very good year in November and the person who is the nominee is likely to serve in that office come next January. Right. Well, and Ryan Walters just continues to become this caricature of a caricature. Uh, you know, he, he believes that this uh, in this rampant culture war that's being played out in the trenches of our elementary school classrooms. And as a as a parent myself of, of kids in uh, both elementary and, and middle school and public schools in Oklahoma, I, I, that's just not the case. I mean, those aren't the things that you know, the parents are really worried about, the kids are really worried about. I can tell you that that's not what the teachers are worried about. 
you know, when we've done back to school nights uh, recently and you go in, if, if I met an administrator like April Grace, who was telling me, you know, we got to make sure that our dollars show up in our school. We got to make sure that we're hiring teachers, that we're not relying on emergency certification uh, the way that we currently are. Boy, that, that sounds great to me. And if I walk in and I meet an administrator and he starts telling me about we're getting the pornography off the, off the shelves of the library, like, what pornography? What are you talking about? Uh, I would, I'd walk out of that thinking, well, I, don't, I don't know about sending my kid to this school, Not a, let alone letting him run you know, uh, public instruction policy for the entire state. Uh, he just, he's just fascinated and fixated uh, on this idea. And I, I don't mean to say that parents can't have legitimate concerns about what is taught in schools uh, and the way that it is taught in schools or the materials that are provided in the schools. I mean, I, I have concerns about those things. You know, I, I have concern about Red Ribbon Week, you know, where they treat, uh, where they talk about drug abstinence and, and things like that instead of harm reduction and, you know, really, you know, things that can really help save kids' lives. Um, but, and, you know, I talk to my kids' teachers about, you know, what are we going to do that week? And then I, I'm prepared as a parent to be able to have conversations with my students and with my children uh, and about their experience as students. This idea that we're just being taken over by Marxists in the trenches in our public school classrooms is just ridiculous um, on its face. I think, though, that it's most salient with people that don't have kids in school. Um, if you have kids in school, you know, wait, this is not the thing that I'm really worried about. You know, I'm, I'm worried about a lot. This isn't what I'm worried about. People that are sitting at home, maybe they don't have kids, maybe they're empty nesters and they're thinking, well, well what's happened since I was there? You know, what, this thing has just fallen apart since, since our kids were there. And they, they may really believe that these things are going on. So that's kind of where I see like the balance in the electorate and, and who Walters is appealing to. And April Grace is talking to those folks that either have kids in school or just had kids in school. I think you're exactly right, Ryan. I mean, when, you, when his message is about the left-wing indoctrination in our schools, that's a message that resonates uh, with what I would call the 65-plus uh, Republican voter likely to come out in a primary or a runoff. I mean, those are the folks, you're right, they don't have school-aged kids. Um, they may have grandkids, and that's what they care about. And this is a message that has resonated at the national level. And Walters is seizing on it and trying to drive that message to drive turnout of those voters here in the uh, last days of the runoff. So uh, it will be about message, and it will be about who turns out. Uh, Ryan and Eva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of KOSU, its staff, or management. Uh, programs like this are made possible through support from KOSU members who are listeners like you. Consider a gift to KOSU in support of This Week in Oklahoma Politics at KOSU.org.